Samuel chapters 18 and 19. From our passage this morning, our main idea is God does what He pleases, and trying to frustrate God's plans will only leave you more frustrated. I'll repeat that again. God does what He pleases, and trying to fight against God's plans will only leave you more frustrated. And if you're taking notes today, we're just going to break up that sentence, and uh, that sentence, uh, portions of that sentence are going to form the main points of today's outline. Number one, God does what he pleases. God does what is wisest. Second, trying to frustrate God's plans. Number three, only leads you more frustrated. And uh, hopefully that'll be clear once again if you didn't get, catch that. The book, of, the book of Samuel, which we know now is First and Second Samuel, broken up into two different books, is about... Israel's, that is God's Old Testament people, Israel's transitioning, transition to being under an earthly king. Now, that might actually sound good, but actually it was really bad because God was to be his people's king. And what had happened was that the people actually didn't want that. Even though God had led them through the Exodus, right, out of Egypt, even though God had sustained them through the desert, and even though God had led them into the promised land, the people wanted to be just like the other nations to have an earthly king that would fight their battles in the way that they wanted. They wanted a strong king who would go with them into their battles, and they wanted someone who was not God. In the beginning of Samuel, we see that the people fear the Philistines. And they were living by sight and not by faith in God as they had forgot about God. The way that they viewed life was as if there was no God over them and no God with them. And so they chose this earthly king just like the other nations. That is bad. And so God hands them over. He hands them over to what exactly they wanted. And so Saul is anointed as king over the people. He's actually our main character today. Saul is anointed as king over the people, not because he's godly, but just because he looks good. He looks the part. But can he lead for the Lord if he does not love the Lord? Where God desired his king, the king over Israel would love him and listen to him. Saul, it actually doesn't seem like he cares very much. He would rather be Lord unto himself, listening to his own counsel and not the Lord's. And you know what the judgment is. Go ahead and turn to chapter 15, verse 28. Look there. Look at what God does. 15, 28. It says there, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That's God's judgment over Saul. Who is this person? It is David. It is David, a man who is after God's own heart, a shepherd boy turning king. So we have to remember here in terms of application, this has to do with the very foundation of, at least the earthly foundation of Jesus Christ's throne. As if, we, if we're looking at Saul and his failures and also David and his successes and failures as we're going to see later on, all of those things point us to Jesus. It reveals our actual true need for to, have, to have Christ reign over us. He who rules in justice and righteousness. 
So really, our eyes should always be, as we're reading through this narrative, it should be on Jesus Christ. And so here we see in Samuel that God strips the, the kingdom away from Saul and he gives it to David. And with that decision made, we come to our first point. God does what he pleases. God does what he pleases. In these few chapters today, or these couple chapters, what we see God doing is rejecting Saul and then choosing David to be the next king. That's what we saw in 16 and 17. And then, of course, we're going to transition more and more into this as we move on. But remember, as far as the passage describes, the only other person who knows that David will be king is God. It is Samuel who had appointed David, right? The only other person who knows is God. And, and the reader, of course. But the people in that day, they didn't quite know yet. When God has Samuel anoint David in chapter 16, it's not disclo disclosed publicly as to why uh, David is even being anointed. But then from chapter six, 17, where David kills Goliath the giant and delivers Israel from the hands of the Philistines, and then in our chapters today, we see that even though people don't know David will be the next king, Man, they sure come to appreciate all of his kingly qualities. They come to appreciate all of David's kingly qualities. All the things that Saul lacks, they come to see in David. They see that David is more of a king than Saul. In our last chapter, Saul was supposed to protect the people from the Philistines, but he doesn't do that. He's actually, it seems like he's really silent He's actually really fearful, and in the narrative there, it's David the shepherd errand boy who steps up to the plate. It's him who is seen as defending the honor of God and the people of God, seeking to defend the honor of God. He then defeats Goliath. Talk about kingly qualities, right? Here's the shepherd boy leading the people against the Philistines. And in chapter 18, we see the people come to see, once again, what God sees, and they love David for it. Now, in terms of fighting against God's will, right, we're going to see Saul fight against God's will. God has stripped the kingdom, remember that? But Saul is crazed. He goes mad fighting for the kingdom, fighting against God's very will. It's really tragic. The king of Israel, king over God's people, fights against the Lord. And we see his eventual downfall. But for now, let's just see that God does what he pleases. And, you know, the people are coming to see David as king and they love him for it. Look there at 18 verses 1 to 5. 18 verses 1 to 5. First, you know who comes to love David? Saul's very own son, the prince. The one who's in line for the throne, okay? So with that in mind, look there at 18.1. As soon as he, that is David, had finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, that is David, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Again, David had just defeated Goliath. And then, uh, and then in, in uh, 55 to 58, if you just scan there, right, Saul comes to ask more questions. He knows that he has promised that whoever kills the Philistine will come into his family. And so he asks him questions about his father, etc., etc. right? He's going to bring this person into his family. Jonathan 
sees exactly what David has done. And he actually pledges himself to David. You see there this language of being knit to the soul of David. Verse 3, you can highlight there. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, in our modern-day culture, our hyper-sexualized culture, we're, we're, we're quick to sort of question this covenant relationship. Are there hints of some sort of sexual immorality? The answer is no. At this point in the narrative, both Jonathan and David are held up as examples of godliness. That's what's going on here, right? They're examples of godliness. So remember, right, as you see here, Jonathan making this covenant with David. Remember that Jonathan, he loves the Lord. Think of the context. We've met Jonathan before in chapter 14. It's Jonathan, actually, who goes out and leads this raid against the Philistines. It's he who knows and trusts and loves and listens to the Lord and defends God's people from the Philistines. He, too, is seen as like a little David doing what Saul is not doing. So in the David and Goliath episode, here is David with his evident love for the Lord, his desire to defend God's honor. David, he's, you know, Jonathan sees David acting in faith, right? He is an example of godliness to us, and so is Jonathan. And so to draw out this godliness, to highlight the godly among the godless, you have Jonathan making this pact and covenant, his love, his evident love towards this other God-lover. They share the same zeal, the same purposes, the same desires, and so they are bound together in the Lord. This covenant not only reflects genuine personal friendship but, uh, and brotherly love, as it says there, and then also as we're going to see in chapter 20 next week, but when we see it in context, it also communicates Jonathan's allegiances here. When you think of love, don't only think personal love, like I love my brother. Think also allegiances, particularly military allegiances. You see what's going on there? Jonathan is Saul's eldest son, once again, in line for the throne. But here he is pledging his loyalty to David. In terms of the content of the covenant, you know, we're not quite sure what exactly the content was. But if you flip over to chapter 20 and you look at 42, go ahead and look over there. Um, here it seems uh, David has to flee. And you look there, Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn. Okay, so there's some sort of swearing going on. Both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. You get something of the hint there. This has to do with family line and kingdom line. Now read all of that with Saul sort of looming in the background. Why doesn't Jonathan pledge his allegiance to his father? No, instead he pledges his allegiance to actually David, this soon-to-be king, and it has implications for their, their lines, their families, as we see later on as well, even from the book of 1 Samuel. The son of the king, seeing something worthy of love and loyalty, not in Saul, but in David, so much so that as a military leader, he pledges military allegiance to the Lord. That's actually what's, uh, sorry, to David. That's actually what's behind uh, him giving over all of his stuff. He gives over his robe, which is actually uh, a sign of status. Uh, and then not only that, though, but he gives his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt he basically says, look, I serve you, David. Tell me what to do, and I will do it. You have my allegiances, my heart, my love. Now, the more that I've learned to lead, 
I'm sure you guys might be the same, right? You guys might, you guys might be in leadership positions, whether at work uh, or, uh, you know, over your children or something like that. The more that I've learned to lead, which includes embracing weaknesses and sins, as well as, you know, figuring out my own strengths and evidences of grace, the more I appreciate godly leaders, right? I hope that you guys all would be in this position. The more we learn about our own leadership, the more we appreciate godly leadership, the more I appreciate the, the so-called generals, at least in my mind, the spiritual generals and the ways in which they lead, they lead in ways that I have no idea about, some of them. And with some degree of experience, certainly not decades of experience, I think it is such a blessing, really a huge blessing to be led by or counseled by these so-called spiritual generals, at least those that I designate in my own mind. And so insofar as they are godly men, insofar as they understand the Bible, insofar as they want the, the good of the church, God's people in Jesus Christ, I think, lead me. Tell me how I can help. Like, let me know what your aim is, let's say, for the denomination, and I will help you because I know exactly what you are about. I think that's basically what's going on here. Jonathan recognizes and appreciates David's godliness, his example, his zeal for God, his trust in God, and so he pledges himself to David in this covenant. But we have to wonder, though, if the prince pledges allegiance to this guy David, what will the current king think and do? Not only Jonathan, but also to David. Well, it's not only Jonathan that sees what God knows, right? That David is a man after my own heart. Not only does, J not only does Jonathan know uh, come to discover what God already knows, the people do as well. The people do as well. So we looked at Jonathan, now we look at the people. Look there at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 18. Um, now, nah, let's just go ahead and look at chapter... Yeah, let's go ahead and look at chapter 18, 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Clearly, the women appreciate David as well. You just imagine, right, the women coming out from all the different cities of Israel singing praises to David also. They appreciate him so much that in their singing, whose name is parallel with the king's? It is David's. The people love David. They're deliverer, right? Jonathan sees he makes a covenant of love. The people, they see, and so they sing his praises. Saul sees, but his response is very different. Look and see what, how Saul responds there. And Saul was, what, very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what, does, what is he thinking? And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Of course, as the people observe David's kingly qualities, Saul does too, but instead of loving, he is moved to hating now, if you are a leader who loves to promote others where appropriate, if you are that type of leader who loves encouraging, gifting, uh, you know, David's victory is so encouraging, right? He does what I cannot do. Praise the Lord. He's going to help in this transition because I already know that the kingdom's not going to go to me. So I want to help, help God, and I want to help the next anointed one 
to go and, you know, transition to the throne. You think David is a wonderful help, a benefit to my leadership, to the kingdom, helping to restore confidence and faith in the people of God in the Lord. You think, how can I promote this guy and push him forward in the eyes of the people, especially given the kingdom is going to someone else? But that's not Saul. Saul is not about promoting others. He's about protecting and preserving what he will kill to possess. What is that? I think it's his earthly glory. God has stripped his kingdom. He knows it in his head. And you see that that kind of haunts him. He sees David. He eyes David. He knows that the people are singing David's praises and that Saul has to share the praises with this guy. And then David's name becomes the bane of his existence. In an absolute ridiculous uh, illustration here, just to try and communicate this a little bit more, uh, me and my family were watching the NBA Finals, one of the games where, one of the many games where the Warriors lost. And we were watching it with this, with this girl. And this game where I, I believe the Raptors had won, towards the end it was just Kawhi Leonard over and over and over and over again, scoring and scoring and scoring. The only thing that this girl could say was, Kawhi Leonard! She's a Warriors fan. Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard, the name, was the bane of her existence in that moment as a Warriors fan. That's what's going on here. With the news that the kingdom will be stripped from him, Saul is all the more desperate. The name of David isn't worthy to be sung, but it's worthy to be eliminated. He himself, David himself, is worthy to be eliminated. He is angry. What, what more can he have but the kingdom? You see that he discovers what God has determined, right? Kingdom going to somebody else. But instead of pledging allegiance, instead of singing his praises, he gets pouty. He gets angry. He gets jealous. You realize that Saul's world is so incredibly small right there. So incredibly small. It's only about him. He discovers what God, Yahweh, knows and even has declared from eternity past. He knows what the Lord over all knows. God all-wise, God all-knowledgeable, all-powerful. He knows what that God has determined, and he pouts. He's territorial. He wants to keep others down. I mean, maybe you know other people who are similarly concerned with this quest for their own glory. You might work with these people. You might feel the effects. These are people who might see other people as competitors to be crushed, as opposed to God's people who, that you can help to flourish. Or maybe you yourself struggle with the same sin. Though God deserves all the glory, you nevertheless fight for what you consider the scraps, which, of course, in your mind is everything. You wrestle then with petty jealousy. You too might wrestle uh, coveting the position, the gifts, the advancement, the promotions of other people, really fearful for your own, worried that other people won't acknowledge your gifts as much as they have the other person. All that, friends, is a sign that you covet what only God deserves. That is glory. That is not only the very substance of sin, but also what makes sin so heinous. It is trying to steal what only belongs to God. That is supplanting God. God deserves all the glory, but you will kill for it in a metaphorical sense. This is the nature of sin. God created us to be in a relationship with him, a loving relationship underneath the father of all love, perfect in his righteousness. 
wise in all of his law, knowing exactly what we need, but we choose to reject it, supplanting God. That's the very nature of sin. That is sin. And the Bible says that we have earned for ourselves just judgment. By all accounts, that is Saul right here in this narrative. You know how we know that he's basically working to supplant God? You know how you know that you're working to basically supplant God when you, you are struggling with that sin in that particular moment of you're a non-Christian? You two are working to supplant God. It's because to Saul, the word and will of God is not something to be appreciated or joyfully submitted to. It is something to be undone. The word and will of God is not something to be accepted and appreciated and joyfully submitted to as if you trust God with everything. It is something to be undone. This brings us to point number two. Point number two, Saul fights against God's plan. Point number two, Saul fights against God's plan. Instead of seeing David as someone he should promote, David is a threat to eliminate. David is a threat to eliminate. Look what Saul does in verses 10 and 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from David... uh, No, that's not right. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while, while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought... I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. You guys remember in chapter 16, if you were with us, chapter 16, we know that David first entered into Saul's court in order to help Saul, in order to soothe him in his anger by playing the lyre or sometimes translated this harp. In in an earlier sermon, I mentioned that this harmful spirit I took to mean a spirit that intends harm on other people. At least that's how I think it should be taken. And uh, this, this, he struggled with rage towards other people. And now with David as a threat, Saul hurls his spear at David, but David evades him twice. Now, what's going on with him evading him twice? Like, how come he doesn't learn? What's going on here? Um, I used to spend a good amount of time with some really angry people, some people who were really marked by fits of rage, kind of like this right here. And you never really knew if today was the day when you would become this person's punching bag. Yesterday, it was the wall. I've told this story about how this one friend of mine, would he shot his VCR with his gun in his house because the VCR wouldn't load properly. Uh, right? You never knew, right? Is it going to be the VCR or is it going to be my head today? Um, imagine trying to serve a king like that and genuinely wanting, actually, to serve a king like that. That's what's going on here. Saul is unpredictable, and it doesn't appear that Saul is absolutely sure that Saul has a personal vendetta against him. As far as he knows, he's just trying to serve the king, who's like a little bit loco. Uh, Saul's failed attempt, though. How does that leave Saul? How does that leave Saul? Now, we're kind of bleeding into the third point, but we're not technically going to get to the third point. But, you know, how does that leave Saul? It leaves him more frustrated. It leaves him more afraid. You look there at verse 12. What does it say? Saul was afraid of David. That's how he's left there. And why is that? Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. The spirit went away from Saul and towards David in relation to the anointing for kingship. Because the Lord was with David. That's why, verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence. So it seems like he was, you know, in his court, and then he's removed from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, like, That's really smart, Saul. Uh, And he went out and came in before the people. 
And look at this. So David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And Saul saw that he had great success. He stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him, before them, meaning victory. Now, when you read that he was afraid because the Lord was with him, know that he is afraid for all of the wrong reasons. Do not read godliness here. He's afraid for all of the wrong reasons. He is afraid of David, right? And one could say, yes, he is afraid of the Lord, but only insofar as the Lord has plans for David. That's very different. That's like David looms before me, not the Lord over David. He's thinking, if the Lord is with him, then that means my kingdom will come to an end. You see that Saul's quest for his own glory eclipsed God and his glory. Never mind who God is in and of himself. Never mind that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Never mind that God and all of his ways are good and never mind that the foundation of God's throne are righteousness and justice. He doesn't really seem to care about all that. He's just too concerned about keeping himself on the throne so that other people would sing his praises. If Saul understood and cared about God, what would he do? Right here in this moment exposed of his sin. His sin is spilling out into the public. Friends, he, would, he would bow down before the Lord and tremble. That is the response of sinners when they come to know that there is the Lord over them. Listen to this. Psalm 90, verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath, we are dismayed. But friends, you realize what brings Saul to an end? Well, what is bringing Saul to an end here? What is causing Saul so much dismay? It is if he becomes throne-less and kingdom-less. Christian, this should set an example in our own lives. What in your life would bring you to your end? Well, what in your life would cause greatest dismay? Is it not getting that thing that you desire or that situation that you've been working for for decades? The way of life you've been imagining, that you've been dreaming about for so long, just like Saul. That's how you know that God has faded away from as your first love and is now in the background. That's how you know you have, frankly, little vision of God because God has become so little to you. When the God of judgment and righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy is not what brings you to dismay. But by God's grace, just like Saul, isn't it interesting that our sin, the sin in our hearts, spills out into the public realm as well? You know that that is actually by God's grace? So if you right now, right here, right now, are wrestling with some sort of sin, and you're having to reconcile or make restitution for it, or you're having to apologize, or you're thinking, like, how do I address this with this other person? Like, oh, you just feel your pride rise up because your sin has spilled out into the public realm. Friends, you realize that in those moments, those are like sirens going off. Those are like the neon signs that God plants right in front of you that tells you something is wrong with your heart. Your problem isn't that person that you sinned against. If that person were just moved out of the way and eliminated, then my life would be okay. 
No, those are sirens and signs that show you the ugliness of your own sin. You see the effects, right? Your own life is messed up. You see that there are effects on other people's lives because you messed it up. There are effects on your relationship with God. Your sin is spilling out into the public. And by God's grace, in those moments, God says, hey, repent of your sin. Be moved to sorrow. Own your sin. And then be moved to faith in Christ. Be sorrowful, right? You know that you're not perfect, which is why Jesus came to live the righteous life we could not live. Yes, in our sin, we deserve judgment. In his, and the Bible says even judgment in hell. That's why Christ came, to save sinners. Here's the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So let me encourage you, right? If you're in that very moment right now where you're like, oh, I can't stand it. Like, this guy is in my way. No, that guy's not in your way. Your sin is in your way. Let me encourage you to be moved to sorrow. Own your sin. All of us have strayed from God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Confess your sin, but, friends, turn to your Savior again. Christ is the King, and praise God that He is loving, He is gracious, and He is merciful. If you're visiting with us, we as Christians see the consequences of sin, once again, as I just mentioned, as, as signs for us to turn to God. Turn to God. It's evidence that something is not right in our hearts. What consequence of sin, friends, do you see in your own life? Maybe you know that you are consumed with that something, glory, significance, lust for something. And you know that there's some sort of overpowering draw to that thing that you wish and you wish that there was some way that you could just control it, but you can't. Or maybe you're in the process of being controlled by your heart's desires, right? You, you have lusted, you've committed adultery, you've done something, and people have lost their trust in you, and they themselves are distancing themselves from you, really to protect themselves, because you're not protecting them, so you're taking advantage of them. Right? So maybe you, you see that, right? People have lost their trust in you. That's a consequence of sin. Or you know that in your pursuit of pleasure, you can continue to leave your loved ones hurt and left behind in your wake. But frankly, what scares you most is the hardness of your heart because you actually don't care about the people you hurt. Whatever evidence you see, it's evidence, friends, that something is wrong in your heart. Now, you could dig in your heels and fight all the more for that thing that you so desire or to trust in yourself as if you can control yourself. You could persist in laying hold of those things or persist in pulling up your bootstraps, so to speak, despite the personal devastation in your life, despite the devastation in your family's life, and despite the devastation in your relationship with God. Or, friends, you can acknowledge the fact that your most fundamental problem is not that thing out there, but your heart in here. Saul has a bad heart. And friends, apart from Christ's work in our lives, friends, so do all of us. But the wonderful thing, once again, as I mentioned earlier, is that this is the very reason why Christ came. He came to save sinners. He doesn't want people to be judged eternally. Is that he wants people to know the Father. He wants people to know him and to be in right relationship with him. So let me encourage you, repent of your sin and believe on God. Listen to all those signs and the sirens that tell you that something is wrong with your heart and turn and repent and believe and trust in him who changes hearts.
praise God, do I sin now? Yes. Do Christians sin now? Yes. But we fundamentally have a different heart, different desires. Desires now that are moved towards God. Repent of your sin and you will be saved. Unfortunately, Saul does not repent. He doesn't repent. Those signs and sirens, he doesn't care. He persists in his sin. Look at this second attempt here to fight against God's will. We looked at the first. He throws a spear at David. Look at the second attempt. In the rest of our passage, we see him even more consumed about glory, more consumed to, uh, to fight for his own glory and kill David. After having failed uh, to kill David personally, he then changes up his strategy in murder. This time, he gets David. He wants to get David killed by the Philistines. And this is in 17 to 29, 17 to 29. Again, Saul is fully aware that if he's going to bring in a son-in-law, he knows that that son-in-law who joins his family must take up kingdom business. He must. What that means is he must fight. Fight against the Philistines. So Saul works it to his own advantage against David in an effort to kill David. In his, effort, uh, his first effort, since that failed, he then changes up his strategy. He, gets him, he wants to get him killed by the Philistines. He first uses his daughter Merib. He first uses his daughter Merib. Look there in 17. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul fought. Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Talk about his sin spilling out into the public realm, right? Sin on top of sin is stacking up right here as he chases his own glory. First, there's anger and rage. Next, that leads to murderous actions. On top of that, he uses his daughter as a ploy to get David killed. And then maybe what is most telling, all of that is done, quote, all in the name of the Lord. As if Saul cares. He's using the Lord and the Lord's battles in order to advance his own agenda. To shorten the story, Merib is eventually given off to somebody else. But there, look there in verse 20. Another one of Saul's daughters, named Michal, loved David. So Saul presses on. Verse 21, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And you see how this unfolds in 22 and 23. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you. That's a lie, absolute lie. And all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it not seem to you a little thing to become the, king in Saul's, uh, the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? Basically, the response is there, I'm poor. How am I going to bring a bride price for your daughter? Like, that's not going to work. And look what happens, verse 24. The servants of Saul told him, told Saul this, thus so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price. Don't worry about it, except, using it to his own advantage, a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. You see what's going on there? He wants to get David killed by the Philistines, and so he's sending David onto the front lines. Go and kill me a hundred of them and come back with a hundred Philistine foreskins. He thinks that it's actually going to work, right? But just imagine the audacity of Saul hoping the enemies of the Lord will kill the Lord's anointed. See, he doesn't care about the Lord. He doesn't care about Yahweh over him, Yahweh with him. He doesn't care. He is Lord unto himself. And this is all in effort so that he would have the glory as Lord, supposed Lord over Israel. But Saul is in for 
a legit surprise, right? The text, the way the text reads, there's like zero hesitation. David's like, all right, great. I can, I can come up with that bright price. Look there in 26. And when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son. Like, yeah, that works. I'll go out and kill 100. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. Now, where does this leave Saul? Verse 28. When Saul saw and knew that, what? The Lord was with David and that Michal, and that Michal Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. This is bordering on the absurd and comical just to see how far, how hard Saul will go to undo what God has already determined. Saul slaves away at preserving his kingship and his path to glory, but what happens? Saul's very own son, his son, pledges allegiance to this David, the glory that Saul lives for, that is the people's praise. Saul now has to share. Not only does Jonathan love David, but Michal, his daughter, does as well. And where Saul sets up David's death at the hands of the Philistines, David only succeeds. And why? Why at every single turn of Saul's evil motives and wicked actions, why doesn't everything work? It is because the Lord is with David. Now, friends, as we look at what's going on here, we think, like, just stop already. You don't even need to be a Christian to read this. and think, like, don't just stop already. This is not in your best interest. Remember how seeing our sin is to help us go to God for Saul. There is still more sin, but all he does is dig in his heels all the more. He is consumed about his own glory, and we know the train wreck is coming. It's not going to end well because he's fighting the sovereign and righteous God. What's interesting is that for a moment, for a little glimmer here, he almost stops. He almost stops. Look at Saul's third attempt, chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Right? He's getting even more public. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Now, that's true delight. That's like allegiance, right? That's fellowship. That's partnership. David was, I'm mean, sorry, Saul wanted to spread the lies. The king delights in you. But no, Jonathan steps up and he really delights much in David. He then goes on and tells uh, David what exactly is going to happen. David then flees, and then you look at 4 and 5. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in, the hand, in his hand and struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And then you see what happens there. Saul listens for a moment, and Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Once again, back where we started, David is with Saul. But as we just continue along there, you look there, skim, 18, or sorry, skim 8 to 10. Saul goes into another fit of rage. Harmful spirit comes upon him, throws a spear. Saul misses. He refuses to let up. But we know who the true king is. And friends, he is in control. Look there, 18 to 24. 18 to 24. We know that something big is going to happen. Why is that? Look at 18. 
Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah. What happens there is that Saul sends his servants after David. Michal gets word of this. Michal helps David escape out of the window. David flees to Samuel. Now, who is Samuel? Remember here, David is fleeing to none other than the prophet of God. He is godly among the godless. He's a stalwart of godliness. Samuel was the one who actually rebuked Saul in the past, delivering the news that God was stripping the kingdom from him. Samuel was the one who anointed David according to God's command, and now David is going to be with him who speaks the word of God. Of course, Saul finds out that David goes to Naoth at Ramah to be with Samuel. What happens? He sends his servants to do his bidding, to arrest David, bring him back so that Saul could kill him. Look at 20 and 24. Now, this is peculiar. This is interesting, but we're going to explain it here. I'll go ahead and read that. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again and the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great wall, well, that is in Siku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth at Ramah. And he went there to Naioth at Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth at Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Saul sends not one, not two, but three groups of servants to do his will, and they all fail. All of them. Instead of arresting him, they all end up prophesying. And then so he gets fed up and decides to take care of the issue himself, and he too ends up prophesying. What is going on? Friends, the point is not what they prophesied. The point is that they prophesied. Saul and his servants are men who are against the Lord and his will and his anointed, that is David. But no matter how badly Saul fights against God's will, they cannot resist God's will. No matter how badly Saul fights against God's will, it is they who are made to speak the word and the will of God. They go against the will of God, seeking to arrest and kill God's anointed. But it is God who arrests them by his spirit in order that God's will be done, in order that God's word be spoken, presumably rebukes, presumably the truth against what they're doing. How ironic is it as well that the man who strives so hard for earthly glory to be clothed in all of the earth's glory here in the spirit of God is reduced to what? Nakedness, nothingness. Point number three. You see here how evident it is that this leaves fighting against God's will, leaves Saul all the more frustrated. You cannot fight against God. God does what he pleases. And what he pleases, friends, is always good. Again, we wish that we could say that Saul learned his lesson, that he repented in a way that showed true godly repentance. He goes on to see, as we're going to move through Samuel, that he does this again. He actually repents, but even still, he doesn't get it. We don't see him repenting in a way that shows true godly repentance. He persists in fighting the will of God, and what happens is that it leaves him all the more frustrated. 
The account of 1 Samuel shows Saul's ongoing and worsening frustration with the will of the Lord and fear of God's anointed that is in David. I mean, doesn't he get all the more fearful and all the more desperate? The sin that is in his heart moves, moves him eventually to actually attempt murder. That doesn't work, so he uses, uses his own daughters as pawns to get him killed by the Philistines. He's filled with lies and deception, and he even does it all in the Lord's name, when really he doesn't seem to care for the Lord and his word. Sadly for Saul, given so many legitimate reasons to question, given so many legitimate reasons to question his loyalties to God, we are left with this proverb that seems to mock his life. Is Saul among the prophets? With Saul's desires and idolatries of self-glory, the Lord and his words that Saul's kingdom would be stripped from him drove him mad. And in fighting against the Lord, Saul basically brings about his own downfall. Later on in 1 Samuel, we see that it is not David who kills him. David actually spares him twice. It's not the Philistines that kill him, though I'm sure that they certainly wanted to. You know how he dies? He actually kills himself. It's almost a, an illustration, a sad illustration to us about where our lives end up when we are all consumed with our sin. We look at Saul and, right, realizing he'd never finally get what he lusts after, sadly, he himself realizes that there's nothing to live for. And so he falls upon his own sword. As we conclude here, we are to learn from Saul's tragic life lived in opposition to God and his anointed, right? You cannot fight God. Doing so will leave you more frustrated. Even worse, even worse, you will find God opposed to you. We see this in Christ, the king that David points ultimately to, where the nations raged against God's anointed. Though God preserves David here in our passage, it was in fact the Lord's will to crush and to give up his eternal son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of his people. Here, where the spears could not touch David, there was one spear that would in fact drain the blood and water of the body of the Son of God. In killing Christ, the Romans and the Jews, right, they were consumed with what they wanted. And in all their plotting against Christ, in seeing Him crucified, in all of their lying to the public about why Christ's body was gone from the tomb, they thought that they had won, right? But in reality, God had won. According to God's will, Christ was to be the perfect sacrifice for sin and was, in fact. After His crucifixion, three days later, Christ gets up from the grave showing that payment was made in full and that everyone, every sinner who turns from their sins will be saved. The Roman rulers and Herod, the king of the Jews, thought they had the last say. But imagine them hearing what it says in the book of Acts, that Herod and the Roman rulers simply accomplished exactly what God had determined would take place, so that salvation would go to the ends of the earth. You can't fight God. And knowing that he is sovereign and good and loving, why would anyone want to entrust, why wouldn't anyone want to entrust themselves to his rule? Friend, why would you not want to entrust yourself to God's good and sovereign rule? The Bible says that those who fight against God will meet Christ at his return, not as Savior, but as righteous judge. They will find themselves opposed to God and God opposed to them. You may persist in sin, 
fighting for your own glory and therein stealing God's. And it may even appear that you have succeeded for a moment. But given God is sovereign, you can't fight God and his anointed, Jesus Christ, and win. Friends, the wonderful news, though, the wonderful news is that if you hear my voice today, it means that God has still given you opportunity now to take stock of your life to see the sirens, to see the signposts, to recognize that something is wrong with your own heart, to turn from your sins and turn to Christ who has the power to change your heart, and to submit to him as Lord of your life. Those are the options. You have futility of fighting against the Lord, which ends in judgment. Or on the other hand, you have the wonderful blessing of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, right standing before a holy God, new relationship with him as father, a new relationship with Christ as the true king. Repent of your sins and believe. The Lord does what he pleases and get this. It pleases him to call all and to call you and even command all and to command you to call upon his name for salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as we see Saul, we are not only astounded as his, at his audacity, at his pride, at his contempt. He looks so much, he becomes so much like Goliath, pursuing the Lord's anointed and seeking to crush him. But Lord, we find ourselves right here in this narrative. We recognize that we are actually just like Saul in heart. All of us as your people, having been saved from the power of sin, Lord, we know that we were doing these things, that it was us who had crucified the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We know that we are hostile towards the Son, but God, we thank you that there is such great hope in the gospel. We thank you that there is such great hope in Christ, who is our peace, who preaches peace and wins us peace and who reconciles us with the Father. We thank you, Lord, that you pacify our own hostile hearts by your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes. Lord, we know that this is all but by your grace and mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would always remember uh, your great and marvelous work done for us, that you have opened our eyes and caused us to see our sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us repent over and over and over and over again as repentance is something that should be done until the very day we die. Lord, we ask that it, as we do so, Lord, that we would so quickly desire to get off our own throne that we so strive sometimes to be on top of and see that you, Lord, would rightly be upon it. Help us, Lord, whether by uh, rebuke or whether by encouragement, staring at the word, listening to other people here in this church, having fellowship, and even being admonished by them. Lord, we pray that we would always have a big vision of you and that we would know that you are the righteous God, righteous in all of your ways, also steadfast in your love, in your grace, and in your mercy. We pray all these things for the sake of your great name. Amen.